Well, his name was Spencer Silver, and he was a researcher, really an inventor, uh, a chemist working for 3M, just a, this massive technology company, and he was working in the aerospace sector. A few of our church members work in, uh, work in aerospace, and he was, he was trying to create a new adhesive for aerospace. And uh, obviously, if things are going into outer space or if things are, are flying at high altitudes, you really want the things that you stick together to stay together. Like, that's really, really important. And, uh, and, 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 and Dr. Silver here uh, failed miserably at coming up with a, a, an aerospace adhesive. But out of that failure, because the, the, the adhesive that he created, wasn't very sticky, it didn't even leave a residue behind it, like it wasn't even trying to stick. And then Silver decided, well, maybe there's another use for this adhesive, and he put a little strip of it on a tiny little piece of paper, and fast forward a few decades, and now 50 million, no, sorry, 50 billion post-it notes are being produced for our regular use. We use post-it notes when we want to remember something, don't we? We don't trust our minds. We don't, we, don't, we don't trust that we're going to remember things. And so we get out a little post-it note and we write it down and then we put it somewhere where we can see it. We want something visible. Seeing something visible helps our memory. In fact, Going through the action of just writing the reminder down also helps us remember. We do an activity that is visual and then we put it in front of us. Some of us live with people who don't have great memories and we write post-it notes for them, don't we? Remember to do this. Remember to, to pick up this person at this time. But it's interesting that the post-it note itself is a lot like our memory. Our, our, the post-it note is kind of flimsy and weak, and our memories, to be honest, are flimsy and, and weak. Post-it note adhesive doesn't leave any sort of residue, and sometimes there isn't much residue in my mind in terms of the things that I wanted to remember. But it's, it's the act of writing and the act of putting something in a visual place in front of us so that we can see it with our eyes that triggers our memory, that helps us remember. We can't just trust our brains. Jesus, who created our brains, loves us enough to give us symbols, to give us reminders, to give us things that we can do physically and that we can put in front of us visibly to remind us of who he is and what he's done, to remind us that it's all about Jesus. Jesus has given us wine and water and bread. He wants us to get wet. He wants us to eat. He wants us to drink. He wants us to do something physical and visible to remind us as reminders of who he is and what he's done and what it means for us to relate to him. So today we're going to be learning about baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to witness via video a baptism that happened earlier this morning and we are going to experience here in real time the bread and the cup. We are going to remember the Lord Jesus through the Lord's Supper. Jesus has given us these two 
reminders, something physical, something visible to remind us about something that is spiritual and that is invisible, the work that he's done in our lives through the power of his Holy Spirit. So when it comes to remembering our relationship with him, it starts with, it starts with remembering him through the symbol of baptism. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down. It starts with the symbol of a baptism. It's, I'm sorry, just a little bit of a pause because we've got some visitors with us here. That code there in the top right, if you're visiting with us and you dropped your child off at Hope Kids, your child and the leaders at Hope Kids would like you to come uh, and visit them there. But the symbol of baptism, uh, putting someone underwater, allowing someone to put you underwater is a symbol of our union with Christ and how our relationship with Christ first began. The, the, the image of water is a powerful symbol from, uh, from Genesis uh, to Revelation. All creation, right, came out of water. The g- God spoke, the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. He spoke and said, let there be light, and he spoke, and dry land was formed out from under the, the water, and then when, when God wanted to judge his creation after Adam and Eve fell and, and then fell into sin and then by the days of Noah, the world had become so corrupt that God was going to judge the whole world and he judged the whole world with water. The whole world was buried really in water. Genesis 7, 18 to 23 says, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Water is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of burial. But it's also a symbol of salvation. That that Noah and his family were saved through the water, through the ark. It says only Noah was left in verse 23. And those who were with him in the ark. And the flood was kind of like creation 2.0. There was judgment with the water, but there was also this new creation, this fresh start in the days days of Noah. And then when God wanted to start a new nation, when he wanted to set his people free from Egypt, again, water enters into Egypt. The story, and it sounds like creation. Let me show you what I mean. In Exodus chapter 14, it says, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. That's that's the language of Genesis chapter 1. But then there's also the language of Genesis 7, because Pharaoh and his army were destroyed by that same water. Well, verse 22 says, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. So the water judges those who oppose God, but the water is also the means by which the people who trust God are saved. So water is a symbol of judgment. Water is also a symbol of of salvation. But that water is not just a symbol of judgment and salvation. It's also a symbol of renewal and refreshing. 
and the Holy Spirit. The, the prophets like Isaiah in chapter 44 verse 3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. Water is a symbol of cleansing as well. It's a symbol of newness of life. It's a symbol of being given a new heart. It's a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then fast forward to the New Testament. Now you've got John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He shows up on the scene. Remember, he's wearing weird clothes. He's wearing camel hair. He's eating weird food. He's eating bugs and and honey. And yet, this big crowd, we should go listen to the bug-eating guy. Crowds of people are coming out and listening to him, and he's telling them that they need to get baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, not a great location to start a church. And yet people are coming out to see him. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, historically speaking, John the Baptist did not invent baptism. The practice of baptism is not in the Old Testament, but in the period between the Testaments, The Jewish people created this rite of baptism that people needed to be baptized. Not Jewish people. Jewish people didn't need to be baptized because they were already the special chosen people of God. But if someone wanted to worship the true God, if someone wanted to visit the temple, if someone wanted to participate in some of the feasts and festivals and become a God-fearer, before they got to worship the Jewish God, they had to get baptized. And the symbolism there was that you're one of these dirty Gentiles. You're not as good as us. So if you want to join us, we'll be over here waiting because we're already clean. You are unclean. You guys need to be baptized and then you can join us. But the thing about John the Baptist, what was so radical about him, why all the Pharisees were freaking out about what he was teaching was that he was telling the Jewish people they needed to be baptized. That was the kicker. That's what created all the, all the crowds. Was this, that's why he said, do not presume to say, your, say to yourselves, we have Abraham as your father. They were trusting, well, I'm Jewish. I don't need to be baptized. I don't need to be forgiven because I'm already part of the special people of God. John says, no, you're just as much of a sinner as the next guy. The Jewish people, you, 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 are, you are descendants of Abraham, but that's not going to save you. You need to repent of your sin. And that's what baptism is a symbol of. He says, God's able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Baptism is this leveler, this idea that, listen, everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs to repent of their sin. It's not that one group is better than another group. Then Jesus shows up on the scene and he wants to get baptized. It says uh, later on in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. There was nothing he needed to repent of. He didn't need to go underwater as a symbol of death. 
He didn't, he didn't need the presence of the, of, of the Holy Spirit to be symbolized in his life. He was filled with the Spirit. But he wanted to get baptized. Why is that? Tim Chester is very helpful in this regard. He says, here's the Son of God, the Word made flesh. He's perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need to be reborn. And yet, he steps into the water, the water that symbolizes our sin and judgment. Jesus steps into our mess, our wickedness, our judgment. He identifies with us. It's a dramatic declaration of intent. Jesus is symbolically engulfed by the waters of judgment. All those stories from the Old Testament were setting us up to understand this moment. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with his people and expresses his intent to take the judgment we deserve. Going under the water is a symbol of death and judgment. Jesus went under the water to say that he was going to go through death and judgment on our behalf. Then Jesus mentions baptism one other time. In, in, in Mark chapter 10, James and John are trying to discuss the seating arrangements in Jesus' kingdom and who's going to sit on the left and who's going to sit on the right. And, and Jesus says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? When Jesus mentioned baptism the second time, he wasn't referring back to being at the Jordan River. He was referring to something in his future. You see, when Jesus got baptized, he was pointing to what the, to the, when Jesus was baptized physically, he was pointing to being baptized spiritually into the punishment for our sin. Again, Tim Chester is really, really helpful here. He's not just a guy known for great sweaters. It says, in the Jordan River, Jesus was symbolically baptized into our sins. On the cross, he is actually and really baptized into our sins. He is immersed in our sin, completely covered. He dies and is buried. He bears our judgment in full. And on the third day, he rises again. He passes through judgment to give us new life. So when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, let me show you here on the, on the screen with the diagram, Jesus' baptism was pointing forward to the cross which was the actual baptism of being baptized into our sin and death. Our baptism looks back to the cross because we remember what Jesus has accomplished for us by being baptized into our sin. So Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And then Jesus makes baptism, he establishes baptism as step one for identifying who his disciples are. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he tells his disciples, you are to go and to make disciples. And the way that you are to make disciples is to put them under water. If they believe the gospel, if they receive the forgiveness that I have accomplished for them on the cross, then put them on to step one. 
And then we see the disciples living this out. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. People are speaking in different languages. It attracts a crowd. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. His passage is Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And people are convicted by what he says. And they say, they say to him, they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Step one, repent and be baptized. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Repent and be baptized. It starts with baptism. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commanded his apostles to baptize new believers and then we see them living that out in Acts chapter 2. And then as the rest of the New Testament unfolds, we see the apostles, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, continually reminding the disciples, the Christians, about their baptism. He's always telling, they're always telling them, remember your baptism. Think about what it meant for you to be baptized. And their teaching on baptism in the New Testament is really summed up in three categories. Number one is that union with Christ. It's how our relationship with Jesus begins. Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He tells them, remember your baptism. He says in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Coming up on the screen, Romans chapter 6. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we get baptized, we are, we are uniting ourselves to Jesus. In his death, we're going under the water as a symbol of burial. But we're also coming out of the water. Just as Jesus was resurrected, baptism is a symbol of resurrection of new life. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. This is why every time someone gets baptized at church, it's, it's simultaneously a funeral service and a baby dedication. Because we are celebrating that someone has died. They've, th that old self th that used to live for sin is, is dead. And now there is a new self, a new birth. It's simultaneously a burial and a, and a birth. This baptism tank is a tomb and a womb, all right? This is a place where people are declaring that they've been buried, that they're dead, but it's also a place where they are, they are saying that they're being reborn. That's all tied up in the symbolism of our union with Jesus. Secondly, it's, it's a baptism. Baptism is a sign of our cleansing from sin, our cleansing from sin. Baptism happens in the context of water. It's not special water, but this is, this is actual water. Jesus wants us to get wet. Why do we get wet? Why do we put water on ourselves? I mean, hopefully you put water on yourself in the last 48 to 72 hours, right? Or else someone's going to be sitting the next seat over. Baptism, water is the universal cleanser. And so baptism is not just a symbol of judgment, not just a symbol of death, not just a symbol of resurrection. It's, all, it's a multi-layered symbol. It's also a symbol of cleansing. 
The, the apostle Peter made reference to this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, remember when I mentioned the ark? I'm not making that up. Peter is the one who, who encourages us to view Noah and the ark like a baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It, it, it's, not, it's not a baptism, okay? We're, we're, it, you don't get in there to have an actual bath. It's not like sin is something that you can wash off. It's not the act that saves you. But it, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not baptism that saves you. It's the appeal to God. Baptism symbolizes that you have asked God, you've made an appeal to God to cleanse you. Just like Ananias told Paul as soon as he got saved. In Acts chapter 22, Paul's telling his testimony and Ananias said, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ, death and resurrection, burial and birth. It's also a symbol of cleansing. And then lastly, it's a symbol of membership in the church. Remember, Jewish people, before John the Baptist, Jewish people never thought of getting baptized. And and John the Baptist and Jesus radically transformed that idea, this idea that everyone needs to be baptized. If you want to become a member of the church, you have to be baptized. No one gets a special pass. The church at Galatia that was trying to sort of uh, elevate Jewish people over the rest of the Gentile people and, and saying that you needed to become Jewish in order to become Christian. Paul writing to the church at Galatia says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We're going to watch a video in just a minute of Asha getting baptized under this water. She's becoming a member of our church. And there aren't any members of this church that haven't done the same thing. No one got a pass. We all, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to be united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We all need to be cleansed from our sin. And part of what's happening in a baptism service is that we, the church, the baptized members of this church, are listening to her testimony, affirming that she is a believer, and recognizing that and we're welcoming, welcoming her into the church family. So let me introduce you to Asha. Here's her baptism testimony, and you can see this visual reminder, this visual display of what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. Amen. Amen. Listen, when, when, when Asha was sharing her testimony, she said everything is new now. Now that she's trusting, it's, it, it's this idea of a new, that's what the water symbolizes. That's what the birth imagery is meant to convey. That's, what, that's the post-it note that we're supposed to remember, that we are made new. We let someone put us underwater. We were buried. We were raised to newness of life. This is true spiritually, and the physical aspect of baptism is to remind us of those incredible truths. So it starts with the symbol of baptism. And then, and then secondly, our relationship with Jesus is sustained with the symbols of the Lord's Supper. 
So baptism is about our union with Christ. The Lord's Supper is about our communion, our our community, our experience of relationship with him in an ongoing manner. Now, baptism is a symbol of new creation. And if you go back to the original creation story, dry land emerged out of the water. Adam and Eve are created. And the first thing God wants to say to them, one of the first details he gives us, what are they supposed to eat? He's created them, he started them, but he wants to sustain them. And so he gives them guidance in terms of what they should eat. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God is a generous God. I put you in this garden. You can eat any of the trees that you want. But then he gives them a rule. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then as the story unfolds in Genesis chapter Three, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, read Genesis chapter two, every tree was already like that. But this is what was special about this tree and why she wanted to sin by eating from this tree. The tree was desired to make one wise. Because if she could be wise, then she wouldn't have to lean on God for wisdom. And she could figure things out on her own and wouldn't need God. So she took of its fruit and ate. Remember those two verbs, she took and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That, that was the creation story. God created, he, he, he established, here's what you're going to eat, and yet the people sinned in relation to what they ate. What about the recreation at the story of Noah, when the world is judged by water, and Noah is sort of like Adam 2.0, God immediately, Genesis chapter 9, we remember Phil's a sermon about that, God gave commands about what to eat, now you're allowed to eat meat, praise the Lord. God clarifies what he can eat, but then what happens with Noah? He sins by what he drinks, he makes wine, he gets drunk. Same pattern, new creation, what are you going to eat? The people sin by eating. New creation, what are you going to eat? The people sin by eating. How about, the, how about the creation of the nation of Israel? They get through the Red Sea, they pass through the water, they're established as a new nation, and then what happens? What are we going to eat? Manna, water from the rock. And how do they respond with what they're going to eat? Do they follow God's law? No, they don't. They sin in relationship to what they eat. It's the same pattern. And when a new believer is baptized in Christ, when a new believer starts that relationship with Jesus, God says, here's how I'm going to sustain you. Here's what you're going to eat. You're a new creation. Let's talk about food. Let's talk about how you're going to be sustained. And the way that we're sustained is through the Lord's Supper. This is what we are commanded to eat as members of the new creation. God told his people when he rescued them from Egypt to eat a special meal. Remember the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where God told his, God told his people that they are to slay a lamb and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. The lamb died instead of them. The blood over their doorway meant that the judgment of God was going to pass them by. And then God says, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And this became an annual recurrence, an annual post-it note, something physical and visible for them to do. They were supposed to eat to remember that they weren't always free, 
They were supposed to eat to remember that they used to be slaves in Egypt. They were supposed to eat and remember that the lamb died instead of them. And then fast forward a little bit to Mount Sinai. God has thundered down the Ten Commandments from the top of the mountain. And then Moses reads it to them again in Exodus 24. He took the book of the covenant and read it on the, in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Moses read to them the Ten Commandments. And they're like, check, 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 check. We'll, we'll do all of that. And then as a graphic reminder, look what happens next. Moses took the blood. They had animal sacrifices. He took the blood from those animals and threw it on the people. That's a bad day to sit front row in church. Someone join Phil and Daniel and these guys up here. Come on. Why are you sitting right at the back? You come early to sit at the back? Come sit up front. I won't throw blood on you, I promise. Mostly promise. Anyway, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood was a symbol of if we don't follow through on all the checks, if we don't perfectly obey the Ten Commandments, we deserve to become like those animals who just got sacrificed. And you know the story of Israel, how that eventually all worked out. But then something peculiar happens in the same chapter. So, the blood gets thrown on the people, and then look at what happens next in verses 9 to 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They went up on the Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. So here they are, covered in the blood of a sacrificed animal. And now they have access into the presence of God. Into the presence of a holy God who in any other situation would have laid his hand on them in judgment and destroyed them. They could have been evaporated on the spot, but because they were covered in blood, they had access. And notice what they do. What does God do to say, we're on good terms right now? They eat and they drink. God wants to commune with his people. He wants to deal with their sin so that he can relate to them through eating and drinking. Then God wants to create this moment or recreate this moment again and again with the people of Israel. So he has them build this tent that's going to symbolize his presence. Again, a physical reminder of his spiritual presence. And in the tent, there's a table and on the table is bread. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So regularly, the people are supposed to bake bread and leave it there in the temple with this idea that because of the sacrifices that are happening, we can have communion. We can eat and drink with God in a right relationship with him. But as we know, the relationship all falls apart because the people of God start chasing after idols and start disobeying God's law. And part of God's judgment is famine, isn't it? And part of God's judgment is to take away the wine and to take away the bread. And in a place that used to be flowing with milk and honey, that the promised land becomes a place of scarcity. And the prophets say that the reason why there's no bread and the reason why there's no wine is because there's no fear of God. 
But then the prophets make this incredible promise. In Isaiah chapter 25, which laments the loss of bread and wine, says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. God makes a promise of a feast. But again, it's not just a feast for the Jewish people. See that there? It's a feast for all nations. That everyone is going to be invited to this incredible feast. So then you fast forward a little bit to Jesus in the New Testament. We already talked about this, how Jesus is always on his way to a meal or talking about food or providing food for people. He, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He, he turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 people with bread. And, and he's called himself the bread of life. He's signaling that I'm here to deal with this food problem between the people of God and God himself. And then Jesus invites his disciples to this special meal. And we're familiar with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. Jesus says, I, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the night that he gets arrested. The night before he dies on the cross for our sin. And then in Matthew 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. Does that sound familiar? Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Just like Jesus' baptism pointed back to the ark and Noah and to the parting of the Red Sea and to the symbolism from the prophets of the New, Test of the, of the new Covenant and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, at the Lord's Supper is referring back to all of these stories. Passover is referring to Exodus chapter 12. Take and eat. Eve took and ate. He's referring to Genesis chapter 3. The blood of the covenant is right there from Exodus chapter 24, where they ate and drank with God. And Isaiah 25, feasting in the Father's kingdom. Jesus is pointing to all of these things. You see, when we say it's all about Jesus... That, that though the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, points to his baptism, and points to the Lord's Supper, which was a Passover meal. Notice they didn't eat lamb. They just ate bread and wine. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus establishes a new covenant in his blood on that day, just like those 70 elders had access by the blood temporarily to go eat and drink. We as followers of Jesus Christ have access by the blood of Jesus Christ to eat and drink, not temporarily, but permanently in the practice of the Lord's Supper because of what he has accomplished for us. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Here's a post-it note. Here's a physical, visible reminder. Take this bread in your hand. Take this cup in your hand. I want you to remember what sustains my relationship with you. It's the cross. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God that sustains our relationship with him. 
And then, of course, he passed this practice on to his apostles. In Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. The apostle Paul, it was passed on to him as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Apostle Paul says that when we look at these symbols, we're supposed to look beyond them. And as we look through these symbols, we have this sort of multifaceted perspective where we're supposed to be looking really in four different directions. Firstly, we're supposed to look back. Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We're supposed to proclaim his death, which is a past tense. He's already died. We look back. Secondly, we look forward. We proclaim his death until he comes. So we're looking forward to that Isaiah chapter 25, Revelation chapter 22, where we are feasting in God's presence. But we're also told to look within. Paul says someone should examine themselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're supposed to look within. Lord, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Is there any way that I am living that does not line up with what the gospel teaches? And then lastly, it's not just about us and God. It's not just about us looking within. We're also supposed to look around. It talks about discerning the body. If you look across at chapter 10, verse 17, it, it mentions that there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Part of discerning the body is not like in the Roman Catholic way, de determining that the, the bread becomes the body. That's not what it's talking about. The body is there in chapter 10. The body is us. We're supposed to look around. Remember, the, the main sin in the church at Corinth was, this, was the sin of disunity. Thinking that they're better than other Christians or being divided from other Christians. And so we have, to, we have to discern the body. When we come to communion, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we got to ask, as I'm celebrating communion, how am I doing in terms of the community? Is my behavior actively contributing to the growth and health of the body? Or am I tearing the body apart? That's, that's what discerning the body means. So as we, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I, I just want to take a minute and just respond to kind of three common questions that we get around here at Hope Church. Here, here, here's the first question we're often asked. What should I do if I, if I examine myself and realize that I have unconfessed sin in my life? I'm sure you've done this. I've definitely done this. Where 
as the person at, fr- at the front is leading through the Lord's Supper and the person reads from 1 Corinthians 11 and then they say, you need to examine yourself. And I take some time and I examine myself and I think, that words, I think about words that I've said or thoughts that I've thought or actions that I've done and I, I recognize that they're sinful. And then I think, you know what? I, I'm not gonna go forward today. I, I'm gonna pass the tray to the next person sort of with this mindset that I'm going to wait until I'm more worthy. I, I'm going to wait until I string, you know, a couple of days together or a couple of weeks together where I'm, I'm living rightly and I'm living holy enough to be able to take the Lord's Supper. And, and listen, I've done that before. I'm sure you've done that before. When we do that, we completely miss the point of the Lord's Supper. If you wait until you are worthy, you will never be able to come. If you wait until you are holy enough, you will never leave your seat. The point of the reminder, the point of the bread and the cup is to remind us that we are not holy and that we are not worthy, but that it is all about Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. And so, if you examine yourself and you recognize that there's unconfessed sin in your life, then deal with it by making that unconfessed sin confessed sin. (laughs) And confess it right then and there, and then freely, trusting in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come. We come and we share in the Lord's Supper. But there's one caveat. If we examine ourselves and that sin happens to be a sin that we have committed against another member of the church family and we have not yet asked for their forgiveness, we have not yet attempted to be reconciled to them for the way that we have wronged them, how is that going to look for them if they see you come forward? Remember, Jesus said, if you're, if you're bringing an offering and you remember that you have something against someone or that you've offended someone, what did Jesus say to do? Drop your offering and be reconciled. And so there will be a few minutes. <laughs> if you need to, like, get up out of your seat and move over to the other section and just make sure that you're on good terms with this brother or this sister, it's not too late to be able to do that. But really, loved ones, that's the only time that a born-again believer in Jesus Christ should not take the Lord's Supper is if they know, if they, if they discern the body and they say, you know what? I'm a hand and I, I'm not on good terms with the foot over there and I need, I need to make things right. So that's the first question. What do I do? What do I do if I realize there's unconfessed sin? The, the other question that we, uh, we often get or people often ask me about is, is, should we celebrate communion in small groups? Again, this is something that I've done uh, in the past. It's been really rich. It's been really deep. A small group of friends or a small group Bible study or up at a summer camp or a, or a a Christian retreat center somewhere. And, and there's, 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 there's juice or there's wine and there's bread. And someone says, why don't, why don't we just have a, let's have a communion service right now. And it's, it's informal. It's deep. It's, it's, it's rich. But again, our commitment here at Hope Church is we want to do things biblically and relationally and and prayerfully. And so is it, is it biblical? Is it, is it right? Again, this isn't like a clear black and white answer, but as you look at the New Testament, 
Even if you look at the, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says in verse 18, when you come together. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 11, 33, when you come together. Verse 34, when you come together. The Lord's Supper is supposed to happen when the whole church comes together. What Paul was correcting them of was that there was the early group that came and, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. The people who had to work late, they didn't get to participate or the rich people were off in this room and the poorer people were out. They, they weren't all together. Paul says, no, you got to come together. Now, we can't fit everyone who calls Hope Church their home church. We can't fit all the members all together. And so it would be ideal for us to just have one service where everyone's all together. But, you know, some people are out working with the kids. Other people came to the other service. It's not, we can't get everyone all together. But the ideal is that it's the, it's the representation of the whole church family, which factors into membership and church discipline, which, which go hand in hand with baptism and a communion, which we look forward to talking about next week. And then the, the third question is, should I take communion if I haven't been baptized? Should I take communion if I haven't been baptized? Well, the way that I would answer that question would, would be to, to, to ask you a question. Why do you want to take communion? And you might respond, well, I want to take communion because I love Jesus and I want to participate in this symbol. I want to be reminded that he died for me and that I'm forgiven. I want the sense of community within the body of Christ. And, and I, I would... <laughs> I would respond to you and say the reason why you want to take communion is the reason why you need to be baptized. Because all of the, the, the idea of knowing that you're forgiven and that Jesus loves you and that you're part of the broader community, that's the point of baptism. It's just a matter of getting the symbols in the right sequence. Now again, you might have Taken communion when you weren't baptized, that doesn't mean drinking judgment on yourself, okay? These, these, these aren't black and white issues, but we, we see this pattern in the New Testament. Going back to Acts chapter 2, it says those who received his word were baptized. And they added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, the people who got baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. When they, said, when they were cut to the heart and say, what should we do? The apostle Peter didn't say, well, you know, just come back to church next week and take communion a few times. And all. No, he, he said, repent and be baptized. Let's get that done. That's step one. That's the first symbol. The second symbol is the breaking of bread. So, it, the, and even, even in this context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we've been studying, he's been telling them, that, that I received from the Lord what I delivered to you in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. He says, I delivered this to you. And who are they? They're the people who he describes in 1 Corinthians 12 as who are one in the spirit, who were all baptized into one body. When Paul is writing to the church about how to do communion, he's writing to a group of people who have all been baptized. The New Testament doesn't have a category for an unbaptized believer. I know we need to be a little bit more careful because, you know, different churches mean different things by baptism. And, and so we need to take a few steps and have a few conversations before you get baptized. It's a little different from the New Testament. 
But, but still, the, the, the invitation to participate in the Lord's Supper, the assumption of all of the New Testament authors is that they're writing to baptized believers. It's, it's kind of like a wedding. It's sort of like, you know, your, the, the, the baptism is like your vow. It's like your promise. And then your communion is you sharing a meal, sharing breakfast with your husband the next morning. You don't get to, you don't get to share, you don't get to share that moment until you make that promise. We want to get things in the right order, in the right sequence. And so if you're here today and you want to participate in the Lord's Supper but haven't yet been baptized, then let's just talk about getting the first thing done first. The, the, the baptism is how it starts and it symbolizes how it starts. It might have started for you a long time ago. You've just never been baptized. But baptism is a symbol of how it starts and the Lord's Supper is the symbol of how our relationship with Jesus is sustained. And so I'm going to invite Pastor Chris up in just a minute and he's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And if you're here today, if you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come forward and participate in the Lord's Supper. And as we come forward today, we're remembering these truths from God's Word. That as we come forward, we are sinners in need of God's grace. We are to examine ourselves and confess our sin. We are children who have been adopted into his family. We have been reborn, symbolized in the water of baptism. And now we're sitting around the family table with our heavenly father and with our brothers and sisters. We are a bride who has made her vows to, to our husband. And now we are enjoying a meal. It's like a vow renewal, enjoying a meal together. We are living stones who are being built into a holy temple. We are many nations who have been invited to this great feast hosted by the King of Kings. And we are members of one body who hold, hold in our hands pieces from one loaf.